Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, today, we are talking with the Bailey's brand and planning teams. Uh, if you don't know Bailey's, which will be surprising, I'll try and describe it. It's the sort of luscious, creamy, sweet, almost chocolatey liqueur drink you know, from Ireland. And the challenge it faced was that while their target women genuinely loved the taste of Bailey's and probably had a bottle sitting at home, it was rarely poured. It came out during Christmas time or Easter time and then was sort of put away for the rest of the year. Now, unlike, say, vodka or gin, which can be drank in numerous ways, Bailey's wasn't thought of as being a very sort of versatile spirit. So to try and change this dynamic, for a few years, the brand ran a purpose-driven campaign that positioned Bailey's as the champion of spirited women. Unfortunately, that direction didn't build a business. It was felt that the pursuit of purpose had forgotten the product and why women loved it in the first place. So how do you take that love for taste and better ensure that it's consumed more often? Uh, through the process and through planning, you know, planning discovered in essence that women love Bailey's because it's like liquid cake. It's delicious. It's indulgent. It's all of those wonderful things. Uh, and this whole idea uh, opened up the thought that maybe Bailey's could jump category and compete within cakes and treats and not just compete against cocktails. Maybe Bailey's didn't need to be a standalone drink, but could be sort of a main ingredient in your favorite treat. Maybe Bailey's could be inspiration for sort of new delicious indulgences. And this thought sort of led to a multi-year campaign that allowed the brand to increase sales by close to one-third worldwide. And it won a 2020 IPA award for effectiveness. So today we have a conversation with Jennifer English. She's SVP, Global Brand Director for Bailey's at Diageo. Uh, we also talk with Sheila Cunningham, head of planning for Bailey's at Diageo, and Katie Sinclair, partner at Mother London. That's the, uh, the brand's agency. So this is the story behind Bailey's. Enjoy. So welcome, everybody, and congratulations on winning the 2020 IPA Effectiveness Award uh, for Bailey's. Thank you. Thanks, Fergus. So we, um, we've, we've done a couple of Diageo episodes before. We did um, the Smirnoff Vodka. We've done Guinness. So I'm super excited to have Bailey's on. And what I love about this is uh, um, I know it's much more common now than it used to be, but the idea of having a, a legitimate planner inside the client I know it happens on major brands, but most planners out there don't deal with that because they're not they're not working with fully established um, um, internal planning departments. But it's it's a it's terrific in terms of I'm sure helping um, helping sort of the the brand management kind of think through things. Uh, Jennifer, do you kind of see that that there's different complementary skills that come from an internal planner versus an agency planner? And how would you de- how would you describe that? Oh, great question. Uh, I mean, you know, planners are embedded in every single brand in Diageo, so we can't do our work without an internal planner. It's hard to imagine not having Sheila on our team or indeed the planners in our other brands. Um, what would I say the difference is? Well, uh, Sheila and Katie, you guys can correct me if you think uh, you have a different view, but um, internally we look at 
really making sure we're defining the strategy brilliantly in a way that can inspire both our internal teams and our agencies, making sure the insight is our responsibility and something that's really, really strong, and that it's not a standalone sentence, but that it's really built, it has color and interest, it can inspire all the different parts of the plan. Historically, planners maybe were more in ad agencies and we want our inside thinking to influence what we're doing in every discipline, not just in the creative work we produce with uh, Katie and her team. Um, and then I suppose in the agency, the, the agency builds that with us um, and then takes that and turns it into the brilliant work that we see. And um, the planning team at Mother is very much responsible for like helping us build the great plan, but then like ferrying that through the process, making sure that the final work reflects the intent of the strategy, the insight, and the consumer understanding. So is what it is it a yeah, Sheila, I'm interested, like for you, is it are you working in parallel with with Katie as you develop those insights, or are you coming up with hypotheses or thought starters and then sort of socializing it with Katie and mother? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Jen, you summarized it, it brilliantly there. I think that um, certainly when we're working in the creative space, it absolutely is a partnership. And we work hand in glove with the planners, at Mother, with Katie uh, and her team. And it's it's, it's it makes it for a very, um, I suppose, enriched process because we will be coming steeped in the strategy of the brand, the brand ambition, etc. And then you have the planner on the creative side who's more kind of got their mind's eye to the whole content landscape. And together we can really build this really strong kind of integrated approach and um, absolutely iterative. One of the things you'll hear time again through this podcast will be it's very much been as we've moved category with the brand, very much been testing and learning, learning as we go along the journey and it's been very exciting and working with the planners at Mother, we've been able to navigate our way and evolve. Um, the insight has evolved and our approach has evolved, our brand world, etc. So absolutely very much work together. I suppose to, to build on what Jen says from an internal client side, um, working very much on the strategy, the overall, I mean, the, the role of kind of an internal client planner would be to champion the consumer all the way through all the plans. So that's from physical availability to mental availability and to really be that kind of person who ensures that our all our plans are consumer centric. So this is what's important about this show today and about this Bailey's case is that once again, which I love, we're actually talking about a long term uh, growth, a long term campaign, a long term marketing plan. So we're we're not looking at a single campaign that's been launched in 2019 or 2020. So, um, and I, so I'm wondering, Katie, is does does that when when you're working with Sheila and Jennifer um, on that cycle through these last number of years, um, how uh, when does the work begin? Does it begin when Sheila comes to you, or does it work when on a cycle where you're doing things seasonally, or is it is it is it different? It, you know, it's it's such it's such a good question because I I was flabbergasted when we got up before this um, podcast that we've been on this journey together for six years. I can't I can't believe it's been that long. And it, in many ways, it feels like it was just yesterday. 
And I think part of that is because the job is never really done. So I guess um, it started with a pitch brief, but from the very off, it's been so collaborative, so iterative. We've had lots of false starts, dead ends, uh, learnings along the way, but nothing, I guess one of the things that I love about the relationship we have and the way that Bailey's story continues to unfold is nothing's ever locked or set in stone. That like we don't ever let the ink dry on an insight and go, cool, done, put it in the bottom drawer, we're never gonna touch it again. So what tends to happen is that there's an awful lot of communication between the three of us, but also our, our wider team around, I saw this and it just made me think. So there's definitely more of the kind of chewing the fat, chewing things over, um, just we things that we chuck in that then spiral off into broader conversations around, you know, what perhaps we should be revisiting our insight. And there's something about it, everything seems to live almost in beta that we're able to add sprinkles on top and without feeling that there's something wrong. It's just an iterative, explorative um, development process that I think probably reflects a much more philosophical side of um, Diageo having planners baked into the team mean that there's such an importance based in the brand strategy that it's not something that's done every time the team changes on the client side and then gets put away. It's a living and breathing document that, as Jen said, informs every part of what the brand team does, not just the creative communications. So when you when you look at other mother clients, are they do they have internal planners, most of them or not? Um, I'd say not that many. Um, okay. I think what we're starting to see is that there are more strategy teams within our clients' organizations, but I think it still is quite rare for there to be a true brand planner within the client team. Yeah. So Jennifer, let's let's start off on on the journey by uh, sort of anchoring us in what Bailey's is. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what sort of defines the the category or the aspect of the category or the section within the category of, of uh, spirits and drinks and where, where, where does Bailey's sit? What is its space? Yeah, so within the spirits category, Bailey's sits in uh, liqueurs or cream liqueurs. So Bailey's is the world's first cream liqueur. It's the biggest brand of cream liqueur in the world today. And um, it's a it, it sits in a liqueurs category that is very diffuse. So it includes all those colourful spirits and tall bottles you see on the back bar that get mixed into all the different cocktails. Um, and it's often difficult actually to see how some of these brands compete with each other because they deliver something different in different occasions. And lots of the brands we compete with in that space are local stars versus big global players. So it's unusual to have a big global liqueur brand. And Bailey's like in that was arguably the most successful spirits innovation of the 20th century. It was literally the result of an innovation brief, technical breakthroughs, new consumer targets. Like it's, it's pretty much the definition of an innovation. Um, and a lot of that story is, is within like the Irish state, which at the time was only 50 years old. And the two historically important categories in the state were suffering, dairy and whiskey. 
And Bailey's was the coming together of those two iconic Irish categories. But it required a scientific breakthrough because whiskey and cream don't just mix when you put them in a glass together, they, they separate. So some ice cream technology was employed to help fuse those two ingredients <laughs> together. Cool. Yeah, and keep them in solution. Um, and there's some great stories about like how the team uh, in the like in the agency and the client side work together on that. Um, and then the additional context, I guess, is like this was 1974 and uh, the cultural revolution of the 70s featured women really stepping up and being noticed as consumers for the first time in many cases. Um, and at the time they were drinking things like the snowball, which is like advocate and lemonade with a cherry on top. God, so I remember that. Was, yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing <laughs> no, about that. Uh, no, I remember yeah. hearing about that for sure. Thank God. Um, and Bailey's was a big improvement on the snowball. And uh, the first, like the first TV ad for Bailey's featured a woman going to a bar and ordering a drink, which doesn't sound really radical, but women were supposed to sit in lounges and have That's exactly right. Yeah. I remember that the, the bar at the top of my street when I grew up, where I grew up in Dublin, there was, there was the bar where the men only went and mm -hmm. the women could only go into the lounge. How ridiculous was that? But it is what it, it was what it was. Yeah, exactly. So like, it was strange times. And here was this 50% of the world's population as this kind of natural start for a new uh, innovation in the spirits category. So cream liqueur was born in 74. It grew double digit for decades. It hit a million case mark in the early 80s, like within five or six years of um, being developed. And the million case mark in spirits is the kind of golden you've arrived, like this is all working well moment. Um, there was a really famous ad through the um, early through the middle stages of the brand called Iceman, and it accelerated the brand even further. It was a more generous serve over ice in a tumbler, moving on from that kind of little sherry glass of cream liqueur that um, was first introduced to the market. But then, if you flash forward to the Great Recession in two thousand and eight. I mean, Bailey's was just stopped in its tracks. It was suddenly seen as a really dispensable luxury at a time when consumers were exceptionally cash-strapped and it plunged into decline and lost 17% of its volume in just four years. And was that a, was that a that, category issue across spirits or was it, was it just in liqueurs? I mean, liqueurs definitely hit this stage of becoming really stagnant. All these diffuse brands that couldn't quite find their place. So the category didn't seem that exciting. But it was also... Like there was definite nervousness that maybe a drink that was made out of sugar, cream and whiskey had just maybe had its moment. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't inevitable that we would find our way back to growth. That's for sure. So Sheila, when you, when you look at the, uh, the category during its early days, uh, and I'm, I'm not just talking the 70s, but even looking 70s, 80s, 90s, who, who was sort of, who was drinking it and how was the brand perceived during that time period? Yeah, as Jen said, it was, I mean, the product was designed for women and it was very much targeted at women and has been actually um, for a long, long time. So the people who were drinking it were, were women primarily, but it had this image, as Jen was kind of talking about, when um, of really being that kind of product that was for Christmas. People was, it was kind of kept to those kind of special occasions over the festive spirit, uh, period. And 
unfortunately, we ended up getting this image of kind of the older drinker, the, the granny uh, drinking uh, Baileys. Um, now, we're very happy to have grannies drinking Baileys, but obviously we wanted a wider consumer franchise. So, Katie, from from your perspective, when you came to the brand, um, you guys did work, obviously, to try and understand it. What did you what was your impression after doing some planning work about what the brand represented? I think it's really interesting to to look from where we are now to when we first started this journey, because I guess purpose was still very fashionable not that it's not fashionable but lofty purpose was kind of the be on end all and actually Bailey's had a had a really um positive uh ambition to really contribute beyond just being a drink that had originally been created for women but to have a, to play a cultural role in championing women and that that is something to be lauded but actually our very first observation was that when you looked at the performance of the work over the years, as Jen said, from kind of the, the moment where things started to tail away and the brand became the solo consumption at those unwind on the sofa rather than the dynamic brand um, it had been, we started to see that the work really was failing to cut through and that the core of the purpose, so championing spirited women, was the problem. And... It feels like a feels like a strange thing to say, but almost there was far too much spirit and not enough cream in the comms because we could see a potential avenue for salvaging things by actually looking at when work did perform in terms of um, enjoyment and engagement. It actually was leveraging the delicious qualities of the Bailey's liquid itself. And as we started to do some more work and we dug into consumer research, we saw that in every market, when consumers came alive, they talked about what it actually was about the Bailey's products they loved, not about the Bailey's comms. And that for us was the was the big unlock in, in seeing a way that we could really turn around what at that point was a very problematic chronic decline in the brand's fortunes so let's let's go back a little bit jennifer and talk about the um what was happening in uh, sort of two i think you mentioned 2008 2009 when the mm-hmm. business started to decline um so it wasn't it was it was a category issue but was it but it was a deep bailey's issue so what what did you think the problem was at that time did you think it was a product problem product appeal or was it a marketing problem um, I mean, the first thing that uh, the team who worked on the initial strategy uh, discovered was that Bailey's had really strong equity scores. And I think as a business, we had doubted those strong equity scores, but people love Bailey's. And the more we worked through this strategy, the more we've discovered that it's actually true. It is, in fact, the most loved spirits brand in the world in Cantar's MDS. And uh, we have come to understand why over the period. But at the time, we felt there's a fundamental product problem because it's creamy and sugary. There's a fundamental brand problem because it's become deeply uncool. Um, And uh, there's a fundamental category problem because the category is stagnant and diffuse. And they're pretty big 
problems, right? Um, and, and as a result, the faith of the business was ebbing away. So as Katie described there, when we when we re-looked at our product and what is exciting about it, we redefined it as part cake, part booze, pure pleasure. And we redefined the category that we were operating in from liqueurs to treats, to adult treats. And um, that adult treat space is a huge business globally, growing uh, high single digit to strong double digit in most markets and filled with cultural resonance. So that redefinition really helped us see a new opportunity for Bailey's. So when let's talk a little bit from the planner's perspective in sort of 2013, 2014, when you, uh, when you begin to undertake some planning activities and some research in markets around the world, tell us, tell us tactically what you were doing and what you were looking to discover. I'm smiling as you ask that question, Fergus, because I, I think there's probably not one thing in the planner's toolkit that we didn't do. <laughs> um, there was behavioral research to try and really understand the occasionality of treating where there might be um, opportunities and moments that um, Bailey's could, could play a role. Um, there was semiotics to really understand as we were moving out of a category that Diageo understood so well, so spirits and cream liqueurs, into the space of treating that arguably is not the expertise of um, Diageo as, as an organisation. What could we learn from a semiotics point of view that would help us there? But then we also did a lot of um, qualitative research with our consumers around the world to really dig into the insight. I think one of the biggest learnings for me at that early stage of investigation was that as a team, we brought outmoded hang-ups and baggage into the treating space that was probably born out of the debit-credit understanding um, that reflects how Jen said some of the concerns that a, a product that was so creamy and sugary could be something that would be a problem. Whereas actually we we learned very quickly that the need for permission or um, debit credit was absolutely not in the minds of our consumers. But um, So what do you mean uh, by debit credit? I'm not clear on that. Um, so thinking fr- from a female perspective, thinking about um, calories in, calories out, uh, I have to have done something in order to deserve um, a moment of treating, um, that treating is something that you are, that women were somehow apologetic about, um, whereas actually what we learned was that there's absolutely no apology, <laughs> there's no excuse, and there's no um, there's no need to uh, justify a moment of treat uh, in your everyday life. So let's let's come back to the idea because I'm I'm assuming that there was a point where you went in with a blank sheet of paper and ultimately identified. Uh, the treating platform and idea and that trend, adult treating. Um, um, was that in advance of 2013, 2014? Did you, did you already have that hypothesis that you then took into the research to validate it? Or, or was that research part of the, the journey of ultimately identifying adult treating? 
It was definitely one of the early steps uh, in the process. Uh, We hypothesized that because of its product benefit, we could think about Bailey's as a treat. And we looked at the treats category, found this premium adult treats area and decided to take a look at that, position ourselves there. And and in order to do that, we need to understand it a lot better. So we looked at behavioral economics of treat occasions. We looked at the semiotics of the adult treat category. And we looked at all the things that we would need to do in order to sit in that category. Um, As you sort of asked, Fergus, it was initially a sort of strategy hypothesis. But the more that we looked at it, the more we found it was not only a sizable category, it was a culturally hot category, which made it really interesting to create in. And then one piece of creative would lead to another because we would learn so much from it. In fact, um, we were talking recently about how the first flush of creative that came out of this work was mostly about the treat occasions and placing babies within them. But as we did the semiotics research and understood how the category ticked a bit more, we realized the importance of the serve in that uh, communication as well. So it wasn't just about Bailey's over ice and a treat occasion. It became about sweet, delicious, exciting serves born of the treats category in these treat occasions. And that's where things really began to unlock. So Sheila, talk us through the idea of you can either expand on, on what Jennifer just said or, or talk us through how you got to this hypothesis. Because I think as planners, we all we all start with the business problem as a full team. We start with the business problem, then we're asked to go out and develop some you know, potential solutions. Okay, you start with a blank sheet of paper. How do you get to adult treating? Is that brought to you as a team or did you explore it? And, and how, did you, how did you unearth it? Well, again, just to kind of um, relay, it was the our predecessors I joined in October 2016. So, um, but it was going back to the product. Um, it was going back to the product and that part cake, part booze. And whenever you talk to consumers right across the globe, they talk about that lovely, rich, creamy liquid, that kind of mouthfeel, that beautiful, sensuous. And all of those cues were leading us to that idea that, you know, Bailey's is more than just a drink. It's part cake as well. And when you added those two together, it started to kind of build the horizon. And we started, and at the time, the cultural explosion, I mean, you couldn't turn on the television without food chefs, celebrity chefs everywhere, Instagram flooded with beautiful pictures of food and drink, and treats were absolutely on fire. So the things kind of came together at the same time. And, you know, the behavioral economics piece was really, really pivotal in helping us stretch our horizons beyond the world of TBA, of total beverage alcohol, and into the food and drink space. And what we found was, whilst there often is an overlap between alcohol and food and drink, there is still kind of other areas that are kind of you can stretch it into. And, you know, it was a really exciting piece of work because it really started to shape our thinking into beyond where it had been um, purely at home, but actually out and about when at a Christmas market or, you know, after dinner when in a restaurant. Jen mentioned Pear was a really exciting um, execution. It was probably our most successful in year one of the creative. 
And what we did was uh, we kind of tried to decode that. What were the things that were working really, really well within that particular execution? And what we found was that the serve is very much front and center. It's very different. It kind of makes consumers kind of sit back and think about Bailey's in a slightly different way, a bit of a refresh when she puts the uh, ice cream into her Bailey's. It's a really different and uh, dynamic way of thinking of Bailey's and quite fresh for the consumer. And they really took to that. That was really, really powerful. But as well as that, there was this slightly playful, uh, slightly kind of uh, humorous, tongue-in-cheek type aspect, which really, really appealed. And what we did then, just from a kind of a sequential piece, was the semiotics piece. And what that was, uh, was this global piece of work, which tapped into, looked at kind of the world of indulgence right across. You can imagine the, the decks that we've been looking at with all these absolutely amazing serves across the world were, were hard to bear sometimes on a three sure, o'clock yeah. in an afternoon. Um, but really fantastic kind of insight into the world of food and drink and treats from Mexico right the way through to Germany, to Nigeria, Colombia. And we had this really rich insight that, you know, treats are absolutely universal. Yes, how they show up in culture will differ but actually treats are universal and it's absolutely right across the board. We found from the semiotics, a really exciting space for us to go after, impulse of free spirit, that kind of dynamic space, very much in keeping with our heritage actually, when we go back to some of the ads that Jen was talking about, you know, some of the playfulness, the sponsorship of Sex and City, uh, some of that was very much part of our brand roots. And, you know, it brought, but we, what we wanted to do was bring that modernity, freshness, dynamism that is in the world of treats. And we were able to bring that. And the semiotic impulsive free spirit really, really provided that sort of North Star. And we were able to use that um, North Star to help us, you know, shape our brand world, help bring all of our content together under this really, really compelling space uh, that would have global appeal and reach. So was there, you know, um, please go ahead. I'm sorry, I just, I think the thing that's perhaps most interesting for the planners listening to this about, about the Bailey story is, it seems so damn obvious now that Bailey's is a treat, but six, seven years ago, it wasn't an obvious, place to get to um and I think that that's perhaps something that's worth dwelling on a wee bit because as you just asked about that blank piece of paper um when when we picked up the brief and the conversations we had with the Bailey's client team at that point was that there weren't many glimmers of hope um the decline looked terminal and given the dynamics of the liqueurs category, it wouldn't be enough for us just to increase penetration or to increase frequency. We had to find a way of getting more people to drink a little more Baileys across more occasions. And the only glimmer of hope that we saw was that despite the performance, the brand was still the most loved spirits brand. Um, so there was something strange going on there that Bailey's was loved but not consumed. Yeah, exactly. And then right. there I was were little 
shimmers, shimmers of like amber, mm -hmm. maybe green in some of the um, tracking of the comms. And that came from places where the true qualities of the liquid, so the deliciousness, were front and center in the communications. So we started to look at it like, hang on a second, in pursuit of trying to do the right thing by our audience and having a purpose and an insight that was rooted in championing women, have we forgotten why those women love us in the first place? Have we forgotten entirely about the delicious liquid that made us such a compelling proposition in the first place? And then as Sheila just said, that's where that's where the unlock then kind of just revealed itself, like the most obvious thing in the world, but something that had been missed beforehand in, in pursuit of purpose, we'd entirely forgotten about the product. And so it I, was getting back to the product that opened it up. Was there ever a conversation around uh, what we need a different target for Bailey's, that Bailey's maybe needs a, a, uh, a more expanded target? Yes. Um, so as the strategies evolved, while we started with the target we were most conscious of losing, our female target, um, we have expanded that um, every year, um, looking at both uh, women of all ages and then realising that a big proportion of our volume was coming from men. And the statement that everybody loves Baileys, which we bandy around, um, was actually true. Were there other directions that came out of all of the research work that were uh, serious contenders, but ultimately you didn't deploy against for whatever reason? I think that it, um, it's fair to say that everything came from this treating space. Um, so there wasn't like a, another big strategic platform space. But certainly, um, and it's it's not just true of when we were originally creating the campaign, but it's something that is that remains a constant. There was an awful lot of iteration. One of the biggest learnings from the first wave of, wave of work that came out of this strategic platform was that we were way too surreal, um, and that we were we lost people in um, in our tone in our work, but. The, what would be also, Katie of that of that creative so we can drop it in here? The, um, so the I think popcorn oh, on the sofa um, yeah, okay. would be the best one. And you know what? It's what's interesting because this is also the story of how you create a really successful global campaign. I, the surreality came in part out of us really trying to think of a way that we could create one asset that could be used around the world. And one way of doing that was not to show faces so but in in what that then led to were kind of strangely disembodied arms emerging out of sofas <laughs> which now looks a bit weird but we had the right intentions and I guess the other thing that um beyond the surreality that we learned about the first wave of work and I think it shows the that we were perhaps a wee bit more tentative about how we would embrace the treating space than we than we are now and that's that we felt that we had to look at treating occasions, but we as a product brand would still show up in the same way. So we would still be Bailey's over ice, but there might be some treating paraphernalia around the edges of the glass, for example. And as Sheila said, it was only in pair where Bailey's was actually the treat itself. Um, and it 
we learned a lot from that because it taught us that if we wanted to behave like a real treat, we really had to behave like a real treat and we had to be unashamed of actually really, we called them lick the screen delicious serves. Um, so adding the sprinkles, adding the cream, adding the chocolate, really going all out with these real adult treats and taking all of the learnings from the semiotics and everything that was going on in the cultural space. Because at, at this point, recipes and food content were the new cats on the internet. You know, it was yeah. it was exploding and there was so much we could learn from. So we we took a a big lesson from the first wave of work. And in I'm so glad that we didn't get it right the first time because mm-hmm. it taught us so much. So you then went to you then went to pairing and were there a series of of executions in in that sort of flight of creative or was it uh, was it more limited to to the one in TV in the, in the first wave I think we had we have five executions and then we had a whole host of programmatic assets um, that were further disembodied arms with different um, drink shots. Uh, trying to cue an occasion um but actually when we looked to what worked from those assets it was the ones where the serve wasn't baileys over ice it was say baileys and coffee or baileys and hot chocolate or baileys with marshmallows and that started to help us see that actually behave like a proper treat don't just suggest there's an occasion um and then from that space we really did make a big step change and the next body of work Bailey's was more playful we were brighter and, and, and lighter and you know the other thing I suppose that was perhaps the biggest learning of that body of work because it happened at the same time as we took the semiotics learnings was that we were still behaving by what we would have called the rules of the spirit category are we were still in kind of a moodier, um, more bar style lighting if we were out of home or in that quieter solo consumption of um, the relax and unwind on the sofa moment. And that was almost diametrically opposed to what was happening in the treating category, which was light and playful and bright and vibrant and colorful. And that's when we looked to create a vibrant, playful, perfectly imperfect brand world that probably would still be the thing that was the biggest unlock for Bailey's really behaving like a real treat. So I'd love to get a sense of, from a business perspective, you've obviously got to sell this direction in its early stages. You have to sell this direction into internal management. Um, were there Was there pushback? Was there concerns about getting uh, Bailey's um, kind of considered more of an ingredient than a primary um, uh, sort of product? Um, or, or was there concern about, because obviously the business had fallen back pretty significantly early on. Was there sort of questions about about the validity of that direction at, at all, Jennifer? Mm, so, I mean, the business had a real imperative to solve this problem. Um, but as I say, there was sort of faith ebbing away that it was, that it was a solvable problem. So at the time, um, 
uh, Grainne Wafer, global brand director, Ed Pilkington, who was running marketing in Europe, Sil Salar, global CMO, like people like that were real champions of the brand. They're real believers in brands and that brands have an enduring meaning and quality and that you can always turn that around. And uh, that, that leap of faith was required and painting that possibility was required. But did we get to go from zero to like restored A&P budgets with like big campaigns running all year round? Absolutely not. It was a real test and learn your way there. And a few things were quite interesting along the way that helped us unlock like both the work and the faith of the business. For instance, um, the Europe marketing team partnered with this great baker in London, Molly Bakes, and she made a freak shake with Bailey's. And freak shakes were what it was all about uh, in that moment in time. And it just got huge media pickup, tons of inquiries. And it, like Bailey's in a freak shake was exactly the opposite of what Bailey's in a glass on the rocks looks like. It was exciting and dynamic and definitely not passe. Um, so uh, things like that really helped make people see Bailey's in a new way and start to unlock the strategy. I mean, a strategy is only on paper until it really comes to life and you start to see the numbers move. But very quickly after we started down this road, even with the imperfect work that you know, Sheila and Katie are describing there, the work that's the foundation of what came next, people could start to see how this might work and they could start to see the brand turning a corner. Um, and that's pretty much how we found our way back to where we are today, Fergus. Like we, we make work in whatever discipline, we put it out there in the world, we do a lot of measurement and evaluation of that, understanding returns and investment, um, the quality of the work, the consumer response to it. And we've built the plan back up year after year with a new treating occasion each year using uh, the learnings from each of those, uh, from each batch of M&E. It seems also uh, also incredibly good for the brand. Of course, not good for societies overall, but uh, the pandemic. So all of what we're talking about is sort of pre-pandemic. When you're plugging into what's happening in culture around adult treating, you've identified this trend. You've gotten assets and creative executions against it. You've evolved it over time. You've got this great lens of sort of competing with cakes as well as cocktails. And then the pandemic hits. And it, it seems to me from all data that I've seen that this whole concept of adult treating went on uh, hyperfuel in terms of uh, increasing. People are home, they're baking, they're cooking more. Uh, treats and ways of keeping families together and keeping adults together virtually or in, or in person. How has it been? for Bailey's? And then what have you been executing during the pandemic? Life got really serious in the last year. Um, and what we've seen is that far from being frivolous or dispensable, actually adult treat brands are really needed by people who just need to create a punctuation in their day or a moment where they can enjoy life um, and relax a little. And, um, uh, you know, for Baileys, I guess there's different kind of aspects of that. Um, in one sense, you hear that we're sort of strategically built quite well for the moment. 
and we were a brand with momentum going into the crisis. But on the other hand, like a big proportion of our business is in the on-trade. So we have a big, big challenge in the business. Um, but I suppose the best way of describing it is um, in, in the at-home occasions, Bailey's is performing really well. We have allied ourselves to baking in a big way. And just as you describe, that took off during um the, during the lockdowns internationally and we're back in that phase again and um and that has helped uh we have a lot of short form content which makes it much more cost effective to deploy um and uh we have you know a lot of belief in our business as to the role that baileys plays um so actually in the last six months we've had good investment um and a lot of uh, a lot of displays in stores and we'll see, we'll see soon enough where that lands us. I know, obviously, we're having this conversation because you've won an effectiveness award uh, with IPA 2020. To the degree that you can share here, can you tell us a little bit about the, the results? And did they sort of step up over time? Or, or was, there, was it always a success out of the gate? Well, it definitely like, has gained momentum over time. So as of, um, as of 2019... Bailey's has increased global volume sales by almost a million cases in the five years of the strategy. So that's a 32% increase in in the brand. And in 2019, we finally and at last surpassed our previous high, which was 2009. and so we really feel like now we're putting Bailey's back on the trajectory it should have been on um, uh, over this period. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, while 2020 has been challenging, we do feel like our strength in at-home occasions and the momentum of the brand, the strength, the strong place that it's in at the moment, will see it through. Um, And the other thing that I think is interesting, Fergus, is like it is remarkable just how broad-based and sustained the growth has been. Like it's multiple markets all over the world. Um, and that reflects the fact that just people all over the world love a little treat every now and then, and they see how Bailey's can offer that through the work that we're doing. So, so Katie, when you, from mother's perspective, you've got the key markets for a global brand, and there's many markets where you guys have a physical presence. How did you deal with expanding outside of those key markets for executing the campaign? Yeah, that's a really good question because the core of our team is based in London executing for this platform around the world and as as the platform has grown our need to be able to understand what the treating space means and actually not just what the occasions are but what the serve nuance is um, has only grown and part of the way we've done that is through really um, continuous collaboration with Jennifer and Sheila and us looking at extending the semiotics understanding beyond the core markets and doing a global refresh of that, which really helped us bring a lot more colour and vibrancy into the brand world and into the comms. Um, We don't have people on the ground, for example, in Mexico and Nigeria, but rather than thinking of one size fits all or um, a standard way of doing it, each time a brief has appeared, we've given a bespoke solution. So that could be working with a cultural insight team in Nigeria to really understand the dynamics of the treating category and the occasions. Um, 
when it came to Mexico, actually, we have Mexican creatives within the London agency and working with them to really understand from a language point of view and a tone point of view what, what we would do. But it's definitely been a learning for us because it's a stepping outside of where we have a physical presence and a knowledge and us working closely with Diageo, but also working with independent partners around the world to really get to filling in the gaps in our knowledge and, and ensuring that the universal insight and universal brand world remains true, but can be flexed for a, a local Im, uh, implementation. Jennifer English, Sheila Cunningham, Katie McKay Sinclair, thank you to the three of you for participating in this. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Fergus. It was wonderful talking to you all. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you all.